Welcome to Living Untitled, a new podcast featuring conversations about the limitless optimism and possibilities in our untitled world. I'm your host, Justin Boone. Today, I'm excited to welcome Sandra Del Castillo, PhD, here with us at Living Untitled. Sandra is a storyteller, mentor, ritual artist, and teacher in depth psychology at Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara. Sandra brings a union lens to Mesoamerica, gleaning the archetypal wisdom of their cosmovisions, philosophy, poetry, and mythology, and delves into their significance in this Kairos moment as humanity faces our sixth great extinction. If mythology is the collective dream, as Campbell said, then our dreams are our our personal myth. Depth psychology goes deep, looking into our dreams, the symbols we're attracted to, and the mythology and language of the soul. It focuses on the idea of the world soul, a shared energy within all of us, or rather, we are within it as part of the world. And as before, Be sure to stick around after the conversation for a few resource recommendations to help you dive even deeper into some of the themes Sandra and I explore together. You have a really remarkable background, Sandra. It's funny, I was thinking this earlier that some of these conversations I feel super prepared for. (laughs) Yours, I'll be honest, I don't because you are this whole world that I'm just here to learn and hopefully everyone that listens is here to learn. Describe what you do and characterize your work. Yes, so my doctorate is in in Jungian and archetypal Uh depth psychology. And so depth psychology... I'll just start with that, just sort of distinguish what that means. So it's different, let's say, than the neuroscience-based psychologies of the mind. Uh, Depth psychology began with Sigmund Freud, Mm -hmm. who was the first to recognize the unconscious. Mm -hmm. He began studying dreams and symptoms and... Well, Jung was his his uh, student and then sort of took it further, took the psychology further and recognized the collective unconscious, mm-hmm. right? Depth psychology goes deep. In mm-hmm. other words, it, it looks below the surfaces. It's looking for mythology, dreams, mm-hmm. symbols. These are all considered the language of the soul. Mm-hmm. So it views the world metaphorically, mythically, mm-hmm. with an archetypal eye, we say. It encompasses an ensouled worldview as Jung saw it. And mm-hmm. Jung reintroduced this idea that uh, of the anima mundi, which came from Plato. Mm-hmm. Now, the anima mundi means the the world soul. Mm-hmm. And this was not just from Plato, but the world, you know, the world over prior to the Enlightenment recognized the anima mundi, most, you know, ancient civilizations, yeah. indigenous First Nation peoples yes. recognized that the soul wasn't within, but we were within the soul. Like you think of a soul soup. We were all part of it, right? <laughs> the cosmos. Everything is ensouled. Yeah. James Hillman, who's the uh, founder of archetypal psychology, was a Jungian analyst. Okay. And he said that the soul is not just God made. The soul is in everything, you know, mm. whether it's human made, whether it's made from God, everything. In the ensouled worldview, everything is it has a consciousness, an, an intellect, a ability to communicate. Think of something like synchronicity, which was something that Jung introduced. Yeah. And but something that the ancients knew about. And whether it's if you read Greek mythology, yeah. there's constant yeah. synchronicities going on. 
we think about the two eagles when uh, Telemachus is in the the courtyard of his uh, of the palace and is being taken over by the suitors, and then the he's trying to speak his piece, and you know, the two eagles come and just come together and just start clashing, and you know everybody is watching this happen, and you know Telemachus goes, well, you know, there you have it, and mm. still there were some doubters, yeah. you know, there's some doubters, and yet. There were people that were specifically, that was their field to to discuss the kind of synchronicities, to study, to share with yeah. the people what those synchronicities meant. If you think of synchronicities, if everything is intelligent and ensouled and moving towards a, let's say, an unfolding cosmic story, then of course those eagles were warning the suitors, you know, this is not going to turn out well for you guys. Pay heed. And we often don't, yeah. right? Because we've been so cut off from... That that notion of a, an ensouled world, uh, yes. call it the disenchantment. You know, if we think of our unfolding evolution, it's been really incredibly slow. <laughs> <laughs> Fair, yes. <laughs> so, you know, I think we're, you know, the fact that Jung reintroduced the idea of the anima mundi into his psychology centuries after Plato is a good sign. It spirals back around. It is something that's, archetypal mm. in nature. Yes. And that's a that's a big word archetype, right? And from a Jungian perspective, the archetype is a universal patterns in, in human consciousness that are unique and yet universal. If mythology is is uh, one of its manifestations, right? Dreams are another manifestation. Yes. That's how we recognize the archetypes. Yes. The archetypes can only manifest themselves secondarily mm -hmm. in the figures of myth and dreams. So or symbols and or symptoms and the the gods if we we can understand them as psychological processes, which doesn't mean that they live in the head or mm -hmm. the mind. There are forces within and without, you know, whether it's the gods of thunder or, or the goddesses of love, they represent styles and qualities of consciousness. Mm. When we read myth, these are sort of sparked back to life. They're living blueprints that contain the, the numinous, the soul spark. The, they impart wisdom and values. And these are things that Campbell reintroduced to our society. Yeah. And, and we've seen the effects, let's say, in our films, Star Wars, which is mm -hmm. the perfect example of that. And, or even uh, the Harry Potter books. She drew mm -hmm. a lot from mythology. We are able to find ourselves in mythology. Myth helps to liberate us from, let's say, our ego consciousness. We're yeah. able to find ourselves within the myth. And Campbell called them potentials within. Mm -hmm. And they're awakened within. They, they act as guides imparting, like I say, the values and wisdom. And we find ourselves, as, as Hillman said, entangled in myth when we begin looking for the deeper story to understand ourselves, you know, whether personally or even as a collective. You know, is there a sort of universality in this type of language? Is that why it's still such a prevalent tool for us today? Are symbols still always going to be so important for us in, in a society in one way, shape, or form as a storytelling device, as, you know, a unifier in this way? Like, are symbols inherently inclusive in their design, and is that because of so much of what you're talking about? Absolutely, absolutely. It's a, it's a great question. Symbols, as you recognize, they're alive. Mm. They, you know, it, it, when we when we make contact with them, it, it's as if it, you know, are they they are sparked within. Mm. 
because they are, they're part of, they're ensouled. Yes. And we're part of that ensouled, yes. right, soup. So we, we need, but we need them. We need symbols, like we need myth, yes. like we need to tune into our dreams. If, yes. if, if mythology is the collective dream, as Campbell said, then um, our dreams are our, our personal myth. Yes. And so these figures, these this is, these are all the language of the soul. That's why they mm. resonate so deeply. They, you know, they they never die. Mm. When we even when we think of the the symbol, let's say of Harry Potter, why why should a, an orphan be so such a such a prevalent story? Yeah. Um, well, in a way, because we've all experienced that incredible isolation and we've all been mm. cut off let's say since since the the cartesian since the disenchantment we've all been yes. cut off from the rest of the ensouled cosmos so we are sort of orphans uh, the whole planet yeah. you know in the universe we we you know we imagine that we're the only intelligent we're the only thing that's alive which is to me <laughs> that's such a hard one to to wrap one's head around. No, yeah. that we would yeah. be the only ones alive, and when we're this tiny little, you know, speck in the universe, that, yeah. but we're the only ones intelligent, and we're the only ones that have it together. I mean, which is such a, so ironic as we, you know, are in this death frenzy. You know, yes. it, it, it's um, it's a worldview that has reached its its limit. Mm. You know, I think of. Um, Again, when we find ourselves in myth, I think of the Aztec legend of the five sons. Yeah. Each one of those sons, as it, you know, as it's born, it it knows that it has an end. Yes. You know, the the fifth son, which was the the last son of the Aztecs, they had all of the omens saying that this was, you know, it, it was coming to its end. It, mm. You know, it's it's it. It gathered together, and, and it's coming to its end. Yeah. And Moctezuma knew it. Everybody knew that it was coming to its end. Well, the end of the world, as they knew it, did come to its end. When we understand that these these are cycles, you know, things do come to an end. Civilizations, we do, we've do we seen them come to ends. So we could think of it as the end of this civilization as we know it, and, and we've done our share of, of mistakes. Mm. You know, as the earth yeah. shakes off these centuries of disenchantment, you yeah. know, these ideas that... Uh, matter is dead and it's just to be exploited just as, you know, humans or, you know, indigenous peoples or, you know, people, it's, it's, um, it's a worldview that no longer functions. It's no longer, mm. it no longer serves yeah. if we're to survive. How can we tap into these tools? How are we not maybe tapping into their potential in a way that we could, that could better serve us today? All great questions. When we think about an ensouled worldview, then we, we, we draw on, you know, let's just start, let's say, with the earth, the idea of democracy, right, of the people, for the people, by the mm. people. That in and of itself is, that's a that's a mythic, it's an archetypal potential, yes. isn't it? Yes. Uh, born of Athena. Yes. So, you know, we, we, we look at her, let's say, Athena, what was her, I mean, she, she does have a lot of bad rap, too, because she was a, a warrior. <laughs> yes. uh, and, and, you know, she did, did Medusa wrong. I'm not going <laughs> to say she didn't, but, but gods can, can evolve. But um, so let's think about Athena, what she brought to the, to the Greeks, Right. Mm. So there was the fight between her and Poseidon, a competition, right? Yes. Who was going to be the, the patron of Athens. Yes. Yes. And while Poseidon offered a, the horse and a saltwater fountain, 
she offered the olive tree. That gave them everything, mm-hmm. right? Everything. It, in, it gave not just shade or food or oil or, you know, it, it, it provided uh, energy, you know, fuel for, their, their, for lighting their food, their lanterns, their, yes. everything that they needed, yes. trade. Yes. Uh, she brought the, the, the bridle, the yoke, everything that would serve civilization. Mm-hmm. She brought weaving, pottery, things that would hold, that would contain this potential, this goddess, right, was all in service of civilization. She brought the first uh, trial by, you know, jury and and, uh, law, her her gift of patho or the art of persuasion through eloquence was something that she brought to, to the people. She, unlike her brother Ares, she only went to war to defend the polis, the city state, mm. right? And she was fierce. Yes. You know, she had the Gorgon, the, the Medusa on her shield when she yeah. she was a warrior. Yeah. And she was cunning. She had strategy. She she oversaw everything. Yeah. But again, she only went to war as a defense. That's just real. And yeah. that I feel like that is that's key that. Well, I think we forget that point, right? Because so often we think of Athena more as like this true sort of warrior in a way. I think that, unfortunately, for better or for worse, that sticks with us in a way. It does. She's 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 been labeled very patriarchal. Yes, and but. We think of the the story of Orestes. Orestes killed his his mother because she had betrayed her father, who was the king, and uh, when he was in Troy at the, yes. in, in battle, and uh, Orestes and his mother, you know, her lover, were destroying the city. It was you know the destroying yeah. the kingdom. He's just yeah. making a mess of it. They killed Agamemnon when he returned. It was just you know terrible. Yes. and so what happens? The older gods, mm-hmm. the Furies. They hound anybody that kills their parents, yeah. you know, patricide, matricide. That's that's a big one. And so they yeah. and the Furies, being the ancient old, the older gods, they just haunted, haunted Orestes. And, <laughs> yes. and Orestes was saying, I, oh, you know, <laughs> I, I was just trying to save the kingdom. Yeah. So what Athena's role there was through her art of patho, through mm-hmm. that, you know, eloquence and persuasion. She recognized, first of all, I mean, because she had the the strategic mind, she recognized yeah. that these ancient furies wanted their place. You know, they, they were offended by the younger gods who felt like they knew it all and, and they wanted their place. And she just tried to explain to them, I'll give you your place, but n- not this way. You know, there's a reason. Yes, it's true, but you have to listen to reason too. Why did he do this? Mm-hmm. You know, why was this the case? And so she was able to convert. She gave them a place. Mm-hmm. She said, you'll have your kingdom right under Athens. You'll be the ones responsible for making Athens, you know, wealthy. Mm-hmm. You know, she gave them a big role and she was able to turn them into the kindly ones. Uh, she gave them their own altar, their own thrones where yes. people would go and say, help us. Yeah. So they were changed from the furies to the kindly ones through their actions. Yes. You know, th- through her her actions, through her patho. Yes through her being able to oversee the larger story. Yeah. Now, some people argue, well, you know, he killed his mom. That, you know, that was not cool. Well, fair enough. But, and so she, <laughs> you know, so she, uh, that, you know, is, we're, we're looking at evolution through time. And, but by giving the Furies their place, you know, she, what she taught us, she created the first trial by jury. She, mm-hmm. you know, that's, 
that that's key to a civilization, isn't it? Yeah. Everything that she did was towards building civilization. Yes. And that does evolve over time and how we understand it. Myth in that way, we think of civilization in and of itself as an archetypal potential. Our civilization compared to an archetypal potential, well, you know, it leads a lot to be desired, no? Yeah, yeah. So we can look at democracy like that. We can also look at democracy as a um, of the earth by the earth, for the earth, as we've evolved, yes. yeah, to understand. Yes. Now, that's something that's ancient, though. That's an ancient worldview. Absolutely. Where everything was respected because it was ensouled. Everything had life. Of the earth, by the earth, and for the earth, it's a, a global democracy, isn't it? Mm, How yes. do we, you know, Bandana Shiva talks about the earth democracy, yes. you know, where each, you know, where we, we learn and we share, you know, with mm -hmm. every living being. You know, in a democratic way, every every play, everything has its place. Yes. How do we live with it? How do yes. we, how do we learn from the earth itself? That yeah. the idea of biomimicry, you know, yeah, mutual symbiosis. Let's let's learn. You know, we've studied our sciences have studied, yeah. right nature, but let's learn yeah. from nature now. We've absolutely, and I feel like we use some of this language sort of like when we talk about. You know, right now we're imbalancing our ecosystems, right? Like that, it derives from that very concept right there. But I don't think people fully grasp or understand or appreciate maybe the roots of where that that way of thinking truly comes from. No, we don't because of our our, our mindset, right? We, yes. you know, we we live in a corporate fantasy. Yes. That really has us in its grip, and it, and it's it's death march, isn't it? Yes. Um, now that's been fueled by the world of advertising. Carl Jung sort of likened the world of advertisers and 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 mass media to the dark magicians of the Renaissance. Yeah, you know they they spin a they spin a spell, and yeah. we we've bought it. Hook, line, and sinker. We're not Earth citizens, which gives us purpose. We're consumers, which can never you know, fill us, but it will yeah. certainly fill the pockets of, you know, the corporate fantasy, the, you know, those that yeah. are, you know, in charge of having this uh, fantasy spun. Yeah. And that's, it's, it, it is reaching its end. It is a dangerous time as a result, yeah. you know, those yeah. that are in power, you know, are, you know, dangerously fueling, you know, they're, they're, they're in this frenzy to, to continue this, you know, this power, yeah. regardless of, What's happening on the planet? The climate catastrophe. Yeah. It doesn't matter. They're they're filling their coffers. They they likewise have lost soul, their purpose. So, in in 1994, I think it was, the former Czech president gave the um, address to Stanford graduating class, hmm. and he spoke about planetary democracy ah. that was in harmony with the cosmos. Yes. Which is the ultimate, you know, authority, and that, that now that's something again. Whether you go to Mesopotamia mm -hmm. in the fourth century, or to Mesoamerica in the twelfth century, mm -hmm. an idea of a celestially based social and political order is archetypal in nature. Yeah, it's it's part of that larger story. Yeah. So you're talking about myth. Well, we find myth in our astrology, yes, right? Absolutely. We, we find it in our gods, and and it, to imagine that these are just things that are, you know, belong now to just the, the physicists and, and you know, at NASA, that that's it, that they're gases and 
it, it loses. I mean, it is a disenchanted worldview, oh, isn't sure. it? Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. so what depth psychology does is is a tool to to sort of help us once again reclaim not only our imaginations but our enchanted worldview, our our ensouled yeah. worldview. You know, whether we think of of, of Pluto, let's think. It's a perfect example. Pluto, the United States right now is in its Pluto return. I'm not an astrologer, just okay. But I I, 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 I respect the archetypal astrologer's work. It's yeah, it, yeah. because it's important. If if the United States is is right now in our Pluto return, mm-hmm. now that means that Pluto has returned to where it was in the sky when the United States was born, uh, like 248 years ago, right? Yes. Okay. So that's our Pluto return. Yeah. Now let's look at the god Pluto, right? Okay. Now so is Pluto, right? Yeah. Hades, the underworld, yes. right? But the gods are, are multivalent, which means they have many ways of manifesting mm-hmm. themselves. And one is obviously death. And we see it, and we see it in our politics, which is the ugliest yes. part, you know, of our, of, our, of our nation. We just see it uh, unfolding. And on the other hand, Pluto is also associated with transformation, yes. right? So it's death and, and rebirth, it's transformation. So that's also the possibility. And when we learn to, you know, to, to let's say, dance with these archetypal forces, then we are, become more conscious participants in an ensouled worldview. That's one way to do it through that notion. Now, these are things that the ancients knew, you yeah. know, these are things that the Tlamitinime, the Aztec wise men, were doing thousands of years ago, yeah. understanding, you know, through careful observation of the movements of the planets, they were able to understand the influences, let's say, in one person's life, but likewise, the, the Mayan City-states were designed based on the yes. based on the planetary positions and movements, yes. and it's such a much broader worldview when we're not just in harmony, you know, with ourselves and with mm-hmm. our, you know, with our communities and with our, our our countries, but you know, with the wider universe. This is what Václav Havel was referring to. Yeah. It's it's an invitation, let's say, to the enchanted worldview and an important one that this point, you know, as one world comes to its close as we know it and, and a new one to be, you know, reborn, we need a larger vision, right? How can we, as a society where we are today, again, sort of balancing that science and reason and, you know, we, we can even look at like the the basic sort of surface examples of um religious sort of affiliation in the world today. Like so many people, we see more and more statistically so many people turning away from like a traditional sense of religion in the world. So that's a loss of ritual in some way, shape or form. So how do we as a society today, as sort of modern society, tap back into those practices in a way that's actually going to be a, a Maybe appealing is not the right word. I don't know, but like attractive to people so that they understand their importance, that they can find it, find a, a way for themselves to sort of be in tune in that world. Oh, that's great. And it's a packed question. Yeah, so, totally. <laughs> so, you know, I, I want to say a, a couple of things about that. Yeah. Well, please. actually, a few things. Uh, <laughs> I want to say that. Joanna Macy says that we cannot give birth 
to what we haven't first cherished in our hearts. Imagination is key, right? Yeah. Einstein called it, uh, you know, more important than knowledge. Yeah. In the 14th century, the alchemist Martin Ruland said, imagination is the, the star in man, the celestial yeah. body. Paracelsus said, what is imagination if not the sun in man? Henri Corbin, the French philosopher, said that imagination was the creative force arising from the heart and that the heart speaks in images. That takes us right back to Joanna Macy, what is it that we're cherishing in our hearts? She calls this time the great dying and the great turning. And so what can we imagine? One of the things that I do with students and, and with people in workshop, a creative um, imagining into a new world. Mm -hmm. Now, how do we do that? Well, through mythology. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a base. Create, creation myths, when they're ritually recited, this has been throughout history, they, they recreate. Yes. They restory. Yes. Whether it's our you know, our communities, our, our lives, our um, our world, even the, yes. our crops. In the the Fiji shaman, when the people were suffering from a lack of food or, or, or famine, the Fiji shaman would go to the rice field in ritual, mm -hmm. right, and circle the rice field, telling the rice their creation myth. That that is something that let's say. That's something that we can do, and it and it maybe it goes beyond reason and, and science. We go, you know, what is that? That's so airy fairy. Well, something that has been around in ancient civilizations and that has worked for, you know, for ancient, you know, time immemorial. I'm going to say we can learn something from that, and and certainly. The myth that you know, we, we even myth. The word myth in in our in our culture has been um, usurped to mean a lie, isn't it? Mm, you know, yes. that's yeah. that's that's a real shame because that's that's what we, how we use the word myth. Ritual art draws from mythology, dreams, and an imagination. It creates a sacred space yeah. in which to express these. We know from Mircea Eliade, a Romanian philosopher, as well as Marie-Louise von Franz, a Jungian analyst and, and Jung's contemporary and, and protege, when a space is consecrated, we return to the center. Now you're talking about symbols, okay? Mm. The center is a symbol of wholeness. So that's different. The idea of wholeness is very different than the idea of perfection. If you think of a mandala, another symbol, yes. the mandala, you know, has the both the, the light and the dark. Yeah. We, you know, the yin and the yang symbol, we're part of it, right? We're, we're light and dark. We're consciousness and unconscious, right? Yes. That's just an image wholeness. The gods, the ancient gods, were not just all good. Yes. Right? Yes. They had their creative and destructive forces. Yeah, yeah. And that's just a symbol of wholeness. They're all, they impart a wholeness. Yeah. None of us are perfect. That idea of perfection, I think, is, is, is a disease. It has infected society, yeah. and it's spreading. Yeah, perfection, there's a, um, something that's incredibly sadomasochistic about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and it, it's just so unhealthy. And, and yes. an idea of wholeness, on the other hand, again, back to the idea of that symbol of the center, yes. when we create ritual, when we consecrate any space, we've created a center. Yes. You know, the Aztecs recognized that there was many centers, you know, space-time uh, complexes as there were, you know, years, days of the year. Yeah. Because whenever that space was consecrated, a ritual space was consecrated, yeah. whether to do um, 
mythology, to do ritual, you know, uh, art, to do to to work with dreams. You're creating a center. Yes. And that center, what Plotinus, the Hellenic uh, philosopher, said, the soul emerges from the center, from a circle, right? And it trends towards that that center, that circle. It circles yes. around it. And, and it should, because that's that's where the divinity circles around. Mm. That joins us with the divinity. He said that when we are not joined to that center, then we wander the earth like brutes. I mean, if you look at us on the planet today, it's it's a perfect, <laughs> let's say, image for yeah. corporate fantasy, what we've done to, you know, the yeah. earth and the trash, the seas, the, you know, the just everywhere we look, what we've done to the planet, it, it's it's brutal. Yes. It's been absolutely brutal yeah. to the people, to the indigenous people, to anybody that doesn't fit this perfect standard, this, yeah. you know, the LGBTQ community, which has always been real, a part of life, yes. you know, and every ancient civilization, you know, the, 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 the gifts that they brought. Yes. And, and to to be so incredibly excluded, it's like what? Yes. Where where are we? And who, you know, who, who says that? You know, or, or a woman, you know, to to lose her right because you know what what is this? You yes. know, what is this worldview? Yeah, it's just so it, it's brutal. Yeah, and it's it, it's it 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 you know has this moral you know high ground that it's it just. It's so far from something loving or kind. Which seems so, I, I almost hate to say it, it's like so, so simple when you say it like that, right? But why is it not? Yeah. Why is it so complicated? It's a fair enough question. And, and again, back to Joanna Macy, if we're in the great dying and, and the great turning, then it's up to us to begin the process of imagining this new world mm-hmm. in our hearts. What, what are the images that that looks like? And how can, you know, ritual and mythology help bring us there? How can mm-hmm. even our, you know, just our own awareness of ourselves, how, how can it bring us there? How can these be tools for us mm-hmm. to understand ourselves? How can they, you know, create sort of a, a moral awareness? How, how can we mm-hmm. take moral responsibility for our own actions? Mm-hmm. Here's, a, here's a really interesting example. When the Spaniards first arrived in, in, in Mexico, which, which is Tenochtitlan, which is now the capital, mm-hmm. Um, Bernal Diaz del Castillo was one of the chroniclers and one of the Spanish soldiers, and he chronicles their arrival. They're they're blown away by what they see, completely blown away. They think that they're in a dream. They think yeah. they're they they walked into this ancient legend, and it, it, can such a place exist because it was so exquisitely beautiful? Yeah. I mean, of course, they had, there was the shadow going on. What they understood, what the Aztecs understood, is that if and this was the wording, if if this city were to fall, the world. Would would collapse. The sky would collapse. Mm-hmm. Now, if we think about the sky as consciousness, then we can say it did. Our consciousness collapsed. It went into an underworld. We lost touch with the fact that we're ensouled. Mm-hmm. Tenochtitlan, as David Carrasco, who's a Mesoamerican scholar, mm-hmm. he, he points out it, it. the map, you know, he does a close reading and he finds that the map was divided you know, it was a symbol of, of the universe. It was divided into the four quadrants, yeah. and it had its center. That's an ancient symbol, the four quadrants, right? Mm-hmm. The four, 
you know, cardinal points, that's yeah. an ancient symbol. The Mayans and the and the civilizations the world over recognized the celestial spheres and underworld mm-hmm. spheres mm-hmm. that were peopled and teeming with with uh, gods and supernatural beings and forces. And they came. You know, the earth was called the middle world, and and they penetrated the earth and every living thing on it all the time. Yeah. Now that's an image of an ensouled cosmos, right? Mm-hmm. When we, you know, consider Earth democracy, planetary democracy, we, we think of these terms. When we make a circle, when we create a ritual, we invoke these four directions. Yes. We invoke the center and we create the center. We become that center, the ensouled yes. center. Whether we're doing a piece of artwork mm-hmm. or relating a dream or relating a myth, we are once again joined with celestial time and and terrestrial time we we return to the mythic time of the beginning mm. you know according to um Mircea Eliade right yes. um the Romanian philosopher who you know discovered this in ancient civilizations the world over they called the center zone of absolute reality now what an interesting thought that in wow. a center is the zone of absolute reality where we were united with the mythic time of the beginning. That's where mythologies were recited, creation yeah. myth, the cosmogony was reenacted. You yeah. talk about theater, that's your background. You know that those were reenacted. Absolutely. I mean it's so beautiful to me that yeah. I you know it's like I want to see more of that. Yeah. You know how can we you know how can we in in, in let's say ritual art recreate you yeah. know the the world as we know it you know yeah. these insert and in, sold world views to to begin to move towards the the reenchantment yes yeah. those images that we cherish in our hearts absolutely you know each each step for me you know it's something simple like as a ritual artist I smudge my home every new moon and every full moon. Yeah. That's a simple thing that I can do. I lived in Mexico um, for 15 years in four different states. And yeah. in one of the states, I remember my neighbor was an Irish woman from Ireland. And uh, I remember her telling me, she said, you know, when you smudge, I feel like it protects me too. I, I learned from an indigenous woman when I was in my early 20s. And what she said is that, yes, that's true. It helps. Wow. It helps you, you, your home. It helps your life. It yes. helps ground you, but it also helps your neighbors. It helps your businesses. It, yes. You know, so how do we take our, you know, how do we take ritual into life? How, what is the art of living ritual, yes. you know? Yes. Well, it's incorporating ritual. It's remembering, remembering the soul, remembering that we are ensouled. Yes. The soul's not in us, but we are in soul. So when I do the smudging, I go to all of the corners of yes. the house. I, I do the, the, the closets very carefully so ashes don't spread. Yeah. I, I do the mirrors. Everything is alive, as, as Hillman says. Yeah. And um, everything's ensouled. It, yes. It's like taking, once again, a sort of like a childlike awareness and, and, you know, beginning to play with the objects, for instance, you know, let's say in this room and recognizing, yes. oh, look at this, you know, giving, you know, form, look at the face of this, you know, of the speaker, look at the, yes. to recognize that it has life, right? Absolutely. That it has soul and that it's serving, you know, it's serving this you know, civilization. Yes. If we think about the gods as multivalent, Sharatanga is the new moon goddess. Yes. She had her dark side as well. Yes. And so in the dark of the moon, Sharatanga, before she was new, she would come down to earth and spit herself out as a centipede mm. at a crossroads yeah. and lend herself to the dark, you know, magicians, yeah. right? Yeah. Sorcerers. Now, that's a good time to me when we think about that now, today. What, is that? what does that mean? Well, 
it's a good time to sort of get rid of, you know, these crossroads we're at, to get mm. rid of our face, our darker shadows. There has to be a willingness to face the shadow. And yeah. we tend to not want to. It, that's pretty common, yeah. you know, because it, it involves so much pain and, and, and sorrow and a, yeah. taking also more responsibility. You know, it's well, yeah. easier. Yeah. I was going to say there's accountability. In <laughs> there that. you go. There, there you <laughs> go. That's, that's hard. It is, it is. It is really hard because... When we don't face the shadow, it becomes autonomous, and, and so it's triggered. And it comes out and embarrasses us or humiliates us or does worse, you yes. know, serious damage when, because we're blaming someone. This dark of the moon when she's—it's it, a good time to look at that stuff, mm. you know, and, and, and in a compassionate way with ourselves, you know, yes. and it's, especially with some, you know, someone or, you know, supportive community so that we can work through this and, and in a ritual way, symbolically yeah. rid ourselves of it. it. And of course, it won't disappear overnight. And it's a, it's a process, isn't it? It's a way to destroy, to, to get rid of that, to own it, to, to recognize it and, and yeah. banish it. It's a, it's a lifetime process. How do I, as just me, the individual that maybe like is out of touch with a lot of this, still tap into it in a way that like, there, there's an easy entry point for me in a sense to kind of deepen my relationship with all of it, but also recognize that like just even my own individual effort, my own individual action can have this wonderful, tremendous positive impact on not just myself, but the rest of my community that I'm a part of as well. And I think that's just a really wonderful takeaway Oh, from good. this conversation. So thank you for that. Good. Well, that's one thing. It's one, it's one way to do it. I mean, yeah. when we when we smudge, I'll smudge when I sit down to write. I smudge yeah. every time I sit down to write my dissertation. Yeah. I, I smudge whenever I do a, a, a painting or a, a collage. Yeah. When we create ritual with our lives, yes. that helps. You know, yes. it's just it's a small thing that we can do, but it helps. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you. It's I really appreciate real, that. A, a real pleasure. Few conversations have impacted me the way this did, and hearing Sandra say a world that has reached its limit will be with me for a long time. I love every episode of Living Untitled, but this one challenged me and I hope all of us to think bigger, bigger than ourselves and bigger than our limited understanding of the world. These tools, like symbols, myths, dreams, patterns, and the philosophy of everything being unsold all help us to do that. How else can we begin to understand the immensity of our time here on Earth as part of such a massive collective? Sandra reminded me of our need for balance and a more centered existence. We can get back to that by tapping into the collective consciousness and recognizing and honoring the unsold nature of everything in our lives, everyone in our community, and every community everywhere. Now, during our conversation, Sandra mentioned the author Joseph Campbell. Many of you listening may be familiar with the name, given Campbell's widely adopted storytelling framework, The Hero's Journey. But as Sandra and I discussed, mythology is everywhere, even in our modern world. Campbell's work, The Power of Myth, directly reinforces this point, pointing to many examples of mythology and legend embedded in the fabric of our daily lives. And maybe a bit of a seemingly random recommendation given its format, but fitting with the subject matter of our conversation, 
Adam Gettle's song cycle, Myths and Hymns, is a remarkably moving piece grounded in stories from Greek mythology. The combined stories all center around our relentless search for enlightenment, presented in a rapturous soundscape that does much to express the depth and breadth of our humanity. Find me on LinkedIn to share your own thoughts on my conversation with Sandra or recommend any resources you might have to dive into it deeper as well. This episode was produced by the Untitled Future team. For more information about Untitled Future, please visit us at untitledfuture.com or follow us on LinkedIn. And for more episodes, please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Once again, I'm your host, Justin Boone. Thanks for listening. And remember, life's better when you belong.